Welcome to the Fibery Goodness Tiny Studio Magazine podcast, Tiny Talks, with your hosts Arlene Thayer, yoga teacher, spinner, knitter extraordinaire, and all-round wise person, and myself, Susie Brown, aka Woolwench, passionate fibre artist and owner-publisher of indie magazine, Tiny Studio Creative Life. Join us as we chat about all the behind the scenes at the magazine, creative projects we're working on, life and fibre hacks, and just like in our magazine content, ways to boost your creativity and maximise your moments of fibre art inspiration. So hi everyone, welcome to a new podcast from me, Susie Brown, and the amazing me. spin artiste, Arlene Thayer. Me, Arlene Thayer. We're back today to talk about uh, trends. Trends, and particularly what we're interested in, of course, is fibery trends and how they come and go over time. So this, this was your idea, Arlene. Would you like to sort of introduce the, the topic? Well, uh, you have a magazine issue, a tiny studio issue, that is about craft. And when we were talking about the issue, what kinds of things were going into it, and setting up for a podcast, I said, let's, you know, tie the two together. And let's talk about <clears throat> how trends affect our crafty lives. So yeah. that's what led to the topic. Yeah, and, and I guess for the magazine, the topic is, you know, sort of into the craft. So we're looking at, you know, a, a bit of a deep dive into techniques and the craft of what we do in general. And so I started off for this podcast, I actually did some research. I took a leaf out of Arlene's book with this one because Arlene's great with doing the research and I did a bit of historic research um, and it was really interesting because I'm sort of aware that um, spinning and knitting are a trend that often kind of go together and they do come and go in popularity and you know, the, the amount of people doing it and the perception of it as well. Um, so, you know, I first sort of thought about the whole arts and craft movement and the Industrial Revolution and how, you know, we had all this machinery turn up and things were mechanised and made efficient and quickly and so on and handcrafts became seen as a little bit sort of old-fashioned and maybe a bit backwards. But the arts and craft movement brought that all back again and, you know, sort of value in making things by hand and the actual craft and the enjoyment and the uniqueness of things that people can make. And from there I kind of segued into New Zealand history a little bit because, you know, this is this is where I live. And and I'm aware of changes in um, the use of yarn and wool in New Zealand. Of course, New Zealand's always produced a lot of wool, although honestly much of it's been for carpet making, which is not one of the crafts I've looked at. Um... But if we look back at knitting in New Zealand, it was originally bought here by missionary um, women and some of the early settlers brought their knitting and their wool and the sheep and the spinning. Um, so the, the early knitting in New Zealand uh, was done by men as well as women. In fact, there's also documentation of men uh, spending the three-month ship journey out here knitting. On, on the way. Um, not much else to do on a ship, I think. Uh, and they were making things in like socks and stockings and shawls, um, baby clothes, 
a lot of the stuff that we actually see being knitted today, um, they also made things from uh, linen. Uh, they knitted cotton yarn to make a kind of cheap substitute for lace for things like curtains and bedspreads, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, but we didn't see commercial knitting patterns for outer garments until about 1895. Uh, that's when the first patterns were created for commercial patterns, created for like undergarments and things like the baby clothes and shawls and so on. Um, by the First World War, in New Zealand women were knitting jerseys for both men and women. Um, warm outer clothing was particularly needed. And by the First World War, during the First World War, there was a huge resurgence um, people were knitting socks and balaclavas and gloves and face cloths even for New Zealand soldiers who were fighting in, in Europe. Um, it was cold, that was one thing we could do I guess, uh, and this was when our first knitting book was published in New Zealand, which I thought was pretty exciting. It was called Her Excellency's Knitting Book. It was published in 1915 as a fundraiser for hospitals. There, there were at the time a number of knitted products being made apparently in August 1916 alone there were 130,000 plus items made and knitting was popularized and became quite a, a major home craft at the time may well have been the same overseas as well Susie, um, yeah. Susie I have to interrupt how do they know how many knitted items were made <laughs> well I expect it was because it was gathered up to ship overseas to the soldiers. So there were probably more items than that that were made that were for domestic use, but these would have been the ones that they collected up to ship. <laughs> I wondered that myself. Um, but because they were sending them overseas, I think they made something of an inventory when they did it. Um, and of course, you know, people must have felt really good about having something positive and constructive that they could do to send to their husbands, brothers, sons, um, uncles uh, fighting in Europe. It must have been, you know, a time when they were feeling very concerned and helpless and this was something productive they could do to look after the men folk that were away. And I think pretty much every family in New Zealand had somebody in Europe fighting in the war. So it was, you know, it was quite a major um, contribution that, that they wanted to make there. Um, the, uh, the the knitting book, Her Excellency, that was mentioned in this, was actually Lady Liverpool, the Governor-General's wife of the time. Um, and this is cool. She also ran a competition to design a spinning wheel. And it was won by an architect, Chapman Taylor's Architects in Wellington, who then produced and sold their spinning wheels. So that sort of helped to popularise the spinning for for all this knitting that was being done. Because, you know, the war's got to come from somewhere. And then following the war, during the 1930s, of course, New Zealand, like many other countries around the world, um, suffered from the, the Great Depression. Uh, and, of course, knitting became really valuable at that time. And garments were made and sold to support families. Old garments were unravelled and the yarn was reused to make new clothing. And this is something that I think we've seen come back in recent years as well with people reusing, um, you know, 
thrift store finds and reusing the yarn from it. Um, so at this time, of course, spinning wheels were being rescued from sheds and being put to use again. So post World War One, of course. And then World War Two comes along and knitting is again in big demand. Apparently by May, now this number is really good, by May 1945, 1,168,963 items, it's really specific, had been knitted for the soldiers. So they actually shipped all those items over to Europe for the soldiers. It's a lot That's of knitting. That's a lot of knitting. Could, Considering in, in the country at that time, I suppose we might have had a couple of million people. It wasn't a huge population, although I don't have that figure. Um, so at the time, of course, with that much knitting being sent over to the soldiers, yarn for personal use was actually rationed. That is a trend I hope we don't have to see again. Um, well, so I'm sitting on a good stash. I'm made. okay. Yeah, <laughs> you'll be all right for a while. Um, so, of course, spinning became much more widespread. Uh, and I think it was around this time that we saw companies like Ashford. Um, I think Ashford was one that was specifically creating flat pack spinning wheels to send out to people um, so they could do this yarn production and, and knitting as well. So they sort of began around that time. Um, and then, of course, there was a post-war baby boom, 1950s, uh, huge demand for clothing, um, post-war uh, demand for manufactured goods however at the time affected the perception of knitting and sort of during the 1950s it became seen as a little bit suburban and boring and second best you know you was anything that was a bit homemade looking was a little bit perhaps you know not not as cool as the manufactured stuff um, and it sort of stayed like that till about the 1970s. And during the 1970s, the, the knit patterns started kind of mimicking the designer fashions. Um, and knitting machines grew popular. Now, I didn't realise this. Apparently in the 1980s, 70% of New Zealand households had a resident knitter. And most of them had a knitting machine. Apparently we had a lot of knitting machines in the country in the 1980s. Uh, which explains a lot about the kind of jerseys I grew up with. <clears throat> um, I want to get business cards that say knitter in residence. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a really cool idea. I don't know what the percentage is now, but I don't think we'd be anywhere near 70% of households having a resident knitter in New Zealand. And I suspect it's the same in other countries as well. Seems like a very high number. Um, I, I do remember myself, it must have been in the 80s, making some like knitted leg warmers. They were really trendy at the time. And like making like intarsia designs. And they were easy because they were just straight. Um, and I think I remember buying commercial, really cheap commercially made um, black jerseys and stitching stuff onto them in bright colours, very 80s. Um, but of course we also at this time had, had a lot of um, cheap imported clothings, clothing coming into the country in the 1990s. So knitting really at this time became a hobby uh, for a, a small number of generally older women 
So the 90s did not see a great deal of handcrafts going on in terms of yarn crafting. Um, but by the 2000s, and certainly now, um, we've seen a huge revival of handcrafts in general, and knitting in particular in New Zealand. Uh, people are now looking at like ethical materials and environmentally friendly clothing and of course this is right there in the basket of knitting and, and spinning so we've just seen a huge sort of resurgence in interest in handcrafts which I think is fantastic. I, I sort of feel like this stuff has been reflected globally as well not just in New Zealand with the sort of coming and going around about these times sort of you know post-war 1930s with necessity um, 1970s with sort of hippie alternative um, people making their own stuff and then again now with the pandemic all sort of coming in as a as a trend again would it be the same in the US? Yes well you know <clears throat> I think everything that you reflect about your history growing up <clears throat> in New Zealand is not all that dissimilar to the United States. Um, knitting patterns, you don't really see a lot of them until the Victorian age, same as you mentioned. Um, mm. Certainly knitting for the wars. Of course, we also had a lot of knitting of socks in the Civil War. That was very, right. a very common thing that people did. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, knitting really became a hobby with the industrial age because the people that were knitting to support themselves, the families, oftentimes it was within a family they knit to support themselves. Um, once things could be made commercially so widely, that just about died out. And also... Uh, what we see in this country, in sort of crafting in general, because we had stages of development going on when the country was being founded. And if you look at, say, in the quilting world, and you look at quilts that were produced on the East Coast, where people had been settled for a while, and at the same time period, you looked at quilts that were produced in the Western settling areas, they were very primitive because people were just trying to survive. So you could look at something that was from, say, 1790 or 1800 or 1830, and you would not really think that was produced at the same time because on one end you had a very elevated form of the craft, and on the other side of it you had the most basic scraps patched pieced together so <clears throat> crafting in general the level of ornamentation is largely driven by leisure time and resources yeah. and when you're just trying to survive or it's wartime and it's a very desperate time things are done in a more utilitarian fashion okay. but for us today Crafting, by by and large, is really a hobby and done because it is. we love it. 
So I think it's really important when you look at, when you look back, you see different levels of crafting going on at the same time for that reason. Then look, our motivation to craft is, and how we craft is so reflective of what's going on in the world. So the pandemic created this perfect storm of crafting because now we have the internet which gives us access to a community of other crafters and any craft that we could possibly imagine. We could order things to be sent to us. We didn't have to go out to the store. We couldn't go to the store. And we could get instruction, all kinds of online instruction. And we had more time. And we had the desire. And we had lots of anxiety, which crafting is a great antidote to anxiety. So... In our, in our modern world, it's a much different scenario than 1895. Mm, it, it certainly is. But I do also wonder, you know, you see sort of images of women hand-stitching things, um, tapestry making, you know, right back through the ages. And I wonder how much enjoyment they had from some of those things. Women sitting, spinning for, you know, making a living from it. I wonder how much they enjoyed that uh, compared to how we, we do now when it was a I doubt that they did I, have enjoyment. I know. I, I, I kind of hope that they had some enjoyment from it. But, yeah, sort of. sometimes there is the thing, and you often hear from people that have turned their hobby into their into their main job um how some of that enjoyment does disappear from it so Mm -hmm. uh, as a hobby we clearly get a a lot of enjoyment out of out of what we do hence the large stash of course as well well you know trends can really have an interesting impact in our lives if we are followers of trends so i think back to a day in 2009 when I was on vacation in Sarasota, Florida, and I walked into a yarn shop. I was looking for sock yarn, and actually, I don't remember if I bought any sock yarn, but what I do remember was I saw for the first time some really big, chunky, textured yarn that was hand-spun yarn. I had never thought about that. <laughs> now, I, of course, I knew there was hand-spinning, but I had never thought about that. And um, it turned out it was really catching on at that point. It was sort of a few years before that, mainly. It became, you know, quite a rage. I ended up building a website devoted to it. I ended up meeting Susie because of it. 13 years later, here we are. Spanish and those years were a lot of fun. I walked into as well. That, that oh, that was, yeah, that was moon. Picasso's moon. That was Deb Lambert's <laughs> yeah. shop, and it was her yarn. Yeah. And I, I ended I up buying I think you the only person she inspired with him. No, not, and still to this day, mm. of course. Mm. So Absolutely. those years were really fun, but, you know, uh, textured yarn is not as much the rage as it was 13 years ago. It probably will be again. I hope it is sometime again. It's coming back again. It's coming I back. Think it the, I think it is. I think it is. quite a strong trend towards the, the wall hangs and weavings using some fairly specific kinds of really big yarns. So it's a little bit different in how it's coming back and why it's coming back. But yeah. But I'm seeing some of those, you know, what, what, what Deb was spinning 
2009 and, and on. Um, seeing a lot of it coming back, which is really cool. And I have to say that there was something really magical about making things that were typically made for utilitarian purposes, but making things really just because you thought it would be beautiful and interesting, period, mm -hmm. and not really yeah. caring about utility. And of course, utility is great, and if you can combine the two, even better. But just the, the pursuit of only something that was going to be really imaginative and unusual and wow I never thought you could do that and um, that has a place too not everything has to be useful yeah well I guess it's that you know that following the what if scenario is what if I do this and what if I do that without having to think about how it's going to be used at the end and I think that was one of the things at the time you know, people were doing a lot of art yarn and then the people that weren't doing the art yarn were like, yeah, but what can you do with it? We can't knit that. What do we do with the art yarn? You know, so so I think sometimes there's that kind of little, um, I wouldn't say conflict, but tension um, between how do I use this thing I've just made or do I just allow it to be what it is and enjoy it as a finished thing? So... I don't think that affected the trend at all, but I guess it was one of the things that came along with it. And I think out of that, we've seen a lot of people getting really creative with how to use those yarns, what to make with art yarns. Mm -hmm. So there's a Definitely. lot of things around now, things you can make and ideas. And still comes up now, of course, too, when you when you see uh, in the Facebook groups um, people asking questions, what do you do with your art yarns? And there's a, now a whole range of things coming out that people are making without yarns I saw someone just this morning had used some in tassels in a weaving and otherwise fairly traditional weaving it looked fantastic really creative use of of something like that so I hope it's a trend that sticks around again um I think you're right I think it will I just this weekend mm. was going through <laughs> my closet and all my shawls and scarves and you know I am hoarding two of your scarves that have textured yarns, heavily textured yarns, as yeah. the um, as the warp. Mm, you know, so right. a warp that has some beehives in it and some tailspun yarns and um, really beautiful. Susie, you need to make some more. I need to get my loom out. See, that's another example, though, where... Uh, tools and equipment and materials kind of follow the trend so that that loom that I made those scarves with was the Muddercraft uh, dynamic handle loom and they could see that there were lots of people using really textured yarns and they in their weaving and they're like how can we produce something that will make that easier for people so what they came up with was this um, read system where lo they had lots of segments and they, and you could get them in all different sizes so right up to like a one dent segment that would allow you to use a big chunky lock spun or coiled yarn in in the warp and what I found with these art yarns particularly by putting them into the warp was that it actually gave you the same drape that you got from when you had it in a skein form whereas if you use them in the weft it makes them really sort of like makes it like cardboard and everything sits flat. So putting things into the into the warp really changed completely what I could do with my weaving. And, and this was definitely where, 
you know, the, the trend sort of starts coming up and as people start looking for what else can I do with this, how can I expand on this, we start to get tools and materials that actually let us grow those things even further. And it sort of gives it a momentum that I think is really um, quite exciting when that happens. It doesn't always happen, but it's cool yes. when it does. No doubt, no doubt. And I'm going to have to post some pictures online and maybe prod you into getting back to your loom and weaving with some of your interesting, beautiful yarns. I have a few in my stash. <laughs> so let's talk about the the other side of the coin, okay? So what about people that don't follow the trend, the anti-trend crafting folks? These are people that do not give a crap about the Pantone color of the year. <laughs> they may be quite serious about what they're up to, but changes in the world around them don't affect their approach. And it makes me wonder... Mm -hmm. What does that spectrum look like? I mean, do crafters fall into buckets of following trends versus not following trends? And one thing I have seen come on really strong over the past couple of years is something that looks like an anti-trend, but has really become a trend because so many people are doing it. And that is historical sewing and costuming. See, at first oh, pass, so cool. it looks like anti-trend because... A lot of the enthusiasts, um, they want to learn and apply historically accurate methods and using correct supplies and, you know, having all the right accoutrements when they, they get a costume together. But there's so many people doing it, then it looks like a trend now to me. So that, that yeah. kind of gave me the idea that the bottom line is, if you're doing something, whatever it is, and a lot of people are doing it, it's a trend. <laughs> it doesn't so much matter that it might have been, you know, making a linen shift from the 1790s. But if a lot of people are making linen shifts from the 1790s, I think we have a trend. Um, yeah. Well, I, I suppose that's kind of how trends start. I mean, someone's got to start doing something different to start a trend. Remember when we started with the uh, circular weaving? with the Golden Place yes. course. Yes. Uh, we developed that circular loom and I hunted and hunted and hunted for circle weaving online and there was nothing. There was really nothing. And there was so much interest in those little circular looms that, you know, they just took off and we had the, I've still got the group running, the Facebook group running for the circle weaving. And, you know, there's a whole lot of people doing that now and I sort of think back to that time and, well, you know, no one was doing it but we sort of thought it was kind of fun to do and um, and set it all up and, and off it went. So maybe people were just ready for something different with their weaving or something simple or something to use up scraps that wasn't intimidating as, as a weaving tool. And um, and there we were, we started a trend. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> Absolutely. But I do appreciate the crafters that don't pay attention to trends and they really zero in on what they do and they get really, really good at it. But I don't think that's me. You know, I get excited by that Pantone color report and every year I try to knit a new shawl in that shade for the fall. And it just seems to give mm -hmm. my crafting some structure and purpose that adds to my enjoyment. So Susie, mm -hmm. I, um, I, I wanted to ask you a couple questions. I went and found, I googled, crafting trends from 1970, 
and I came up with a list. And okay. I wanted to run this list by you, and I wanted to see, it's kind of like, never have I ever. Have you ever done this craft, and would you do this craft if the answer <laughs> is no? Um, so the first item is crocheted clothing. Uh, I'm not sure that ever really went away, and you, you mentioned specifically the crocheted bikini. <laughs> I've never done that. I and would you have ever? not made I have not made crochet clothing. However, my mother did. She made some sort of sleeveless jacket things, tunics, very seventies. Her crochet was pretty basic. She just did it because she enjoyed it, and her yarns were sometimes carpet wool. <laughs> not always enjoyable. Actually, I have to say that the thing she made that I've still got, she actually crocheted me an entire blanket. Uh, and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's just was a whole lot of random striped colours through it. Um, and it weighs a ton. <laughs> but it was fantastic. And she crocheted the whole thing. So that's one of actually one of my precious things. Not clothing, but Certainly something she put a lot of time into with crochet. But I'd love to I see like that. the action of crochet, but I've never actually really been good at it. There's still time. All right. <laughs> I'm not making clothing. I wouldn't trust it. <laughs> I I understand why. Okay. The next one is love beads. Did you do you know love what love beads. beads are? Did you ever make love Remind beads? Remind me. Remind me. I think I have. <laughs> I think they were just wooden beads be? that were strung, like like a sort of a long necklace. Just single strand of, of seed I beads. I believe it? that's correct, yes. Yeah, I think I did a lot of that when I was a kid. <coughs> um, macrame. Macrame is next. Um, no, see, I've always, I've always admired that. And I remember going to visit friends from school and they had family members that were making macrame and I thought it was kind of cool and slightly tacky and, or kitsch would probably be the word for it at the time. This would have been in the 80s I think, so it was slightly out of fashion by then. Um, I did try some uh, not that long ago for one of my Tony Studio TV videos. I followed the design from, uh, I think it was... Um, one of the issues we had a macrame pattern and from Lindsay that I really liked so I did give it a go it's not my forte I might try it again I didn't have a lot of patience for it to be honest a lot of stop start okay. for me because I didn't know the knots so I had to sort of figure it all out as I went along um, but I really like the results and I have made some plant hangers plant pot hangers so I would definitely do that again that's a 70s thing that I actually really like well, here's one that you are disqualified from engaging in, I believe, and that is needlepoint for men. Oh, yeah. Well, how's that different from needlepoint for women? It wouldn't be in today's world, but in 1970, there was some kind of distinction. Maybe it was the oh. drawings. They were what they maybe. considered to be drawings that men maybe, would like to stitch maybe up. needlepointed bulldozers or something <laughs> okay here's here's the next one but you know what i might do that just to prove a point honestly 
Okay, then. Oh, yeah, that's cute. We look forward okay. to. We can do a whole podcast about that endeavor. Yeah. Um, pebble pets and rock rascals. Did you have those? I painted rocks. I did paint rocks. Okay. We, How well, about... We um, lived by the beach with many rocks on it. I mean, you know, and you go to the beach and collect a few nice stones and bring them home. What are you going to do with them? Of course, you're going to paint them. So... <laughs> Many of those in our backyard. Okay. How about shrinky dinks? Did you have shrinky dinks? No, I didn't. My friends did. I was so jealous my mother would not buy them. I don't know <laughs> that why. That was too, because it, it was for me. not hippy-dippy enough for your mom. Shrinky dinks, plastic, <laughs> burning plastic yeah. in the oven, you know. In the um, oven. Tie-dye. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely done tie-dye, and I will definitely do tie-dye again. In fact, I do my tie-dyed yarn technique, which is like lots of layers over some resist ties on skeins, and that's actually, that was in the very first Tiny Studio um, issue was my tie-dye technique. So I, I've, this is one thing I do quite like to do with things from the 70s that I find and like, is sort of adapt it for like doing the macrame with art yarn. Sort of change things around a little bit. That's quite fun. Mm. So well, you perhaps my... just painted yourself into a corner, because I'm when I done. give you the next one, <laughs> velvet paintings. Oh my god! How no, are we updating velvet that. paintings? <laughs> Don't know. I'm not sure. There's a way. You know what? Probably the only thing I can imagine doing is using like um, a glow in the dark paint or something. Take something kitsch and make it even more kitsch. Why not? <laughs> That's right. My, here comes my least favorite. I hated this. String art. Oh, yeah, with the nails. With I did the that. nails, yeah. Yeah, I did that. I remember hammering mm-hmm. many, many, many nails into pieces of board. I'm sure my dad wasn't thrilled about that because I think there were often nails left around <laughs> on the ground afterwards. And I remember doing it. And I've seen that has come back again in the last few months I've been seeing some really incredible uh, string art artwork that's so far beyond anything I ever did in the 80s or even the 70s um, that were just like let's make a circle and put string around it these are like 3D things with different layers and just incredible work stuff you would not consider so i'm way too intimidated to ever do that again and then last but certainly not least hooked rugs yes interesting i actually started that a little while ago i have a work in progress uh in a bag somewhere in my stash pile where i've i've actually i was making a cover for one of my chairs and i remembered my mum doing that she made some for my brother with like rocket ships on it. Um, pretty basic, but she enjoyed it. And I think her and my dad actually did make a hooked rug. And I was looking at some of my art yarn a while ago, thinking, you know what? I bet I could use art yarn for rug hooking. So I have started that. It wasn't as fun as I thought it was going to be. No, it sounds tedious. <laughs> it sort of, it, yeah, it got put aside. Um, nice effect, though. I think the tedious part was actually cutting up the yarn. Mm-hmm. The hooking wasn't right. too bad, but cutting it up was, um, yeah, not so much fun. Mm-mm. 
No. It's now, if you fun. go the other way, um, what I have done, you find an old hooked rug at a garage sale or something, and then cut out the little channel so that you just have a strip of the knotted yarns, just one strip out of the whole grid, and then you can spin that. That it oh, looks really that would nice. Be interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. It'd be like a crazy eyelash. Better, way better than eyelash. Way better than eyelash because the um, because the strands stand up. You know, they don't flop over like eyelash. They stick right out. Right. Yeah. So that's good. Okay, that was that was 1970s. Now let's talk about trends right now. And you tell me what you think of these current trends. The first one is... I have to say, some, some of my favorite books are 1970s yarn craft books. I've got a stash of them. <laughs> so I'm hoping they're coming back to, to what you're going to mention now. Um, yes, yes, definitely. Let's just kick it off with the most obvious. Making and using pom-poms. Pom-poms. Yes, I, I got... Um, some of those little pom-pom maker things. I mean, I always made them out of cardboard, bits of donut-shaped cardboard. Yeah. But I got some of those pom-pom tool things that you wrap around and then cut down the center. They're made of plastic. I don't know what they're called. They were very cool. Um, my only problem is how many pom-poms do you need? So I kind of stopped. I make them every once in a while. I think I made a mobile out of something. I don't want to get overrun with pom-poms. <laughs> Yeah, they look. They do look really good with that yarn, though. They're, they're pretty cool, okay. especially you know stuff with sparkly things in it. Um, <laughs> recycled fabric yarns using t-shirts, bed shirts, etc., for weaving and crocheting. I haven't done that. I have made some fabric yarns out of like recycled cotton, um, you know, bed sheets and that kind of thing. But I have very limited use for it. I have put some in weavings. I would like to one day make a rag rug. So that is on my list. Would do that. Okay. But then it doesn't always need to be spun. Actually, my daughter just bought a really amazing rag, rag rug that's done with strips of recycled sari silk. And it's awesome. Mm, so that has inspired me. Mm. Um... Face mask decorating. I did one. <laughs> I admit it. I did one. Then that was it. It was um, the first one I handmade uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And I did some decorative stitching across the top edge. But after that, I um, I just didn't have time to do it. I quite enjoyed it. I like to make things that are functional, so that is something I might do again. Have you? I'll bet you have. I sewed quite a few at the beginning of the pandemic, but I can't say yeah. that I really put any artistry in it at the, that time. Mm. I hadn't sewed anything for a really long time, so I was kind of just focused on getting my sewing skills back. Because um, they would lend themselves to sashiko, which I know you've done quite a lot. Yes, they they do mm. really lend themselves to that. But um, I, honestly, I, I was a little bit um, 
reluctant to even bring this up. I just find the whole face mask thing very um, not so upbeat, and I hope that we don't have to think about things like decorating face masks yeah. much longer. Yeah, I agree. So here's uh, switching gears. Um, two things that stuck out on this list to me that I think are worthy of a little chit-chat. One is, and you brought it up earlier, um, what they call craftism, craft activism. Mm -hmm. That is definitely um, something that's very popular now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have to think back to the to the pussy hats that yep. were um, a huge trend, and for good reason, I think, in the U.S., um, I'm not sure they caught on outside of the U.S. so much, but um, that that was one example that that came to mind uh, of how crafts are being used to make political statements, mm -hmm. and I think they always have been. I I don't think it's a particularly new thing. It's just we have maybe we have more politics now. Mm. That could be. Mm. That could be. Uh, and then the last thing I want to bring up is. Making projects more three-dimensional. Yeah, we've talked about this before in terms of weaving, which you know, it's still in my mind about making three-dimensional weavings. I always thought that would be a really fun thing to do. Um, but in a way, I think anything that you make with fibre, um, most things end up three-dimensional one way or another. I don't know if that's a trend. I've seen a lot of those um, weavings, like, what are they weavings? Wall hangings. That they use those um, machines. What are they called? They're like, it's like rug hooking, but it's done with a machine, like a sort of punch needle. There you go. Mm. It's not mm -hmm. like rug hooking at all. Punch needles. Needle punch. And that it, it looks like so much fun when they have like this massive fiber and then they start cutting it and trimming it to make different 3d shapes that looks really fun i'd love to try that looks fairly time consuming to to create it and um i think i'd want to have a, an idea like a theme to work to for it but it, it looks like a lot of fun especially you know that cutting looks really satisfying <laughs> chopping down the the sections to make different shapes and forms so, so I think that is a trend at the moment. Do you consider yourself a crafter that follows trends or no? Um, no, not so much. I mean, I only find out about the colour of the year from you generally each year. And I tend to just have ideas and just run with it. And maybe it's on a trend, maybe it is, and I'm not really sure. So I'm probably not one that runs with trends. I tend to like to do my own thing a little so bit. So I found something today that um, I thought was pretty interesting when I was getting ready for tonight. And that is that both Etsy and Pinterest, and you have to dig for this a little, they prepare trend reports. Oh, interesting. So Etsy prepares a trend report that... It's based upon what people are buying, and it goes through the different mm -hmm. categories of items, you know, that they have on there. <clears throat> but if you have a fiber business, and you're curious about consumer behavior and how you might be able to play to that, 
looking for those Pinterest and Etsy trend reports mm. could be useful. Very useful. Yep. Yep. Because sometimes, you know, you find out about a trend as it's on its way down too. And that's always a little disappointing, especially if you're trying to run a business doing fibre. If you've just discovered, say, a rainbow trend and it's sort of just on its way out, you're a little bit late for it. It's always good to get in early. So, yeah, that would be a, a really good thing to do. Just keep on top of that. those kinds of reports. I didn't know about the Pinterest one either. That could be really interesting. Because uh -huh. it's got such a wide variety of stuff on it. Yep. So a little, little tip yeah. there. So I guess, you know, to kind of wrap things up, if you're listening to this, you know, coming up with some potential takeaways out of this little... 45 minute chit chat um you know take a look at whether you gravitate towards making things that are trendy what influences you what shapes your work um and do you get excited by trends or not and if what it regardless of what camp you fall into it, it could be fun to disorient yourself a little bit and go the other way um to sort of recharge yourself. Yep. Try something out of the comfort zone that way, really, isn't it? So for me, I'd need to go and have a look on Instagram and, like, pick a... I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with following trends, and I think you can always put your own spin on it and maybe even use combinations of trends that you see. So maybe I should head off to Instagram now and, and have a hunt through and find two or three things that are that are trending on there and see how I can figure out how I can put those together into something something of my own. I think that could be a really fun exercise to do. Alternatively, don't look at Instagram for for a week and, and just look at your stash and see what you come up with when you're looking at your stash. You know, run some yarns through your hands or put some colours together you might not necessarily put together and, and see what you get. I think it's a good challenge. Perhaps we should do that, Arlene, and, and um, come back with whatever we make. <laughs> you mean you're going to have to rip me away from knitting things in Periwinkle this year? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Add a very untrendy colour to your Periwinkle. We'll be fine. I guess I could do that for I, you. I now need to go and look up Periwinkle, by the way. <laughs> Sounds like a nice blue. It, well, it's a purpley with a little blue yeah. yeah it is a nice blue nice purple sounds blue. like my kind of color all right maybe that's going to be one of the first things i add to my on on trend project 2022 the year that Susie becomes trendy <laughs> yeah we'll see about that well, watch <laughs> a little bit of with. watch the new kardashian show on hulu and you'll be right there Oh my goodness. Okay, I might have to make that part of my challenge too, because you know what? I've All never right. watched anything Kardashian. Well, it'll be a few. Now we've really lost everybody now that I brought up the Kardashians, <laughs> so we should probably go. <laughs> it's time, it's time. Thanks for thanks for joining us, everyone. And um, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. We will be back again with something else interesting to talk about, fibery goodness, uh, in a few weeks' time, hopefully. Thanks, Arlene. Bye, Thanks, everyone. Susie. Bye, everybody.
many thanks to our sponsors, Daedalus and Mudgercraft, makers of amazing spinning wheels. You can find us and Tiny Studio Magazine on the website at fibrygoodness.com. See you there.